0: This is a recording from a sermon from Light Church in San Diego, California. For more information, please visit lightsandiego.com.
1: We have been really surprised by um, uh, the, the need and the desperation. For hope in people's hearts. Um, And it makes sense. I mean, the the older that I'm getting, the more I'm realizing uh, that the world becomes increasingly better at giving you reasons not to hope. Which kind of leaves you with two options. Right, as you've kind of been beat up by the world and the things you thought would work out haven't or the relationships you were banking on didn't or the, the job that you want to, whatever those things in your world that you're like, this is what I was hoping for and it didn't work out, you're kind of left with two options. Either you don't hope anymore and you become hopeless. Right? And Proverbs talks about what a hope that is unfulfilled makes the heart sick. And so there's some of you that have been your heart has been so sick that you have made the decision to stop hoping. And that's one option, but there's a problem with that because in scripture it, there's a very very profound verse that talks about that there is three things that remain. There's three things that are foundational for who we are as followers of Jesus, and that is faith, hope and love. And what I find oftentimes with Christians especially as we get older, is that faith and love continue to increase and hope begins to become smaller and smaller. But when you're around children or youth, hope seems to be so tangible. But realism starts to set in, or so we like to call it. I'm not an optimist anymore, I'm a realist. I've, I've become mature, I understand how the world works. And, and, I, and I understand that, but this is our hope and our desire through the next few weeks as we study this letter to the church in Ephesus is that no matter how old you are, no matter how long you've been a follower of Jesus, no matter what you've encountered in this life, that we leave these series of conversations with hope in our heart. And this is why I believe that that can happen. is because as the world has convinced us or tried to convince us that it's not worth having your hopes up, I think what that means is we have to find our hope in something beyond this world. Because I think the world's right. I think if we place our hope in things that are here and temporal and uh, and, and fading and they're like vapor, the author of Ecclesiastes says, then there's a lot of reason to not put your hope in things. But if in this present reality we can begin to start focusing our gaze upon things not just in this world, but things that will last forever, we can regain a reason to hope in our heart again. Not just because we have eternity to look at, but we know the one who holds eternity. And he doesn't just exist in heaven, he exists right now. Which means that we don't get to just have hope in heaven, we get to have hope today. Because we know the person who holds our todays and our tomorrows and our forever. Last week I was, um, I was at downtown Disney uh, and I, I didn't go into the park. But I'm always amazed, I don't know about you, I'm always amazed when I'm at Disneyland, how many people are there, no matter how hot it is or how much it costs. Does anyone else, it's just, it's perplexing, but you're there when it's hot spending that much money, right? Like, you're like, I can't believe people come here while you're there. Who does this? But it's like this anomaly, I'm always, am like, how do they do this? I mean, it is There's no place like it in the world. And they rightfully have this claim on this is the happiest place on earth. But what's so fascinating to me is, have you ever calculated the amount of time you're actually on a ride at Disneyland? (laughs) Just do the math right now. It's not hard. Like, let's say you go on 10 rides while you're at Disneyland. And each ride lasts about two minutes. That's generous. You have spent 20 minutes and hundreds of dollars, <laughs> and a lot of sweat. I'm not, I'm not saying Disneyland's bad. I'm saying, how did they trick us? Like, how are they so smart that we will spend hundreds of dollars to have 20 minutes on a ride, and the rest of the time, you are doing what? What are you doing the rest of the time you're at Disneyland? You're waiting. You're waiting. You're just standing in line. And yes, it's like aesthetically pleasing and there's really fun music playing, right? There's like a character walking. But you're just waiting. You're waiting to get food or you're waiting for a ride. You, the happiest place on earth is a gigantic concrete land where people just wait. <laughs> and they spend all their money doing it. And I, was just, and I was just kind of walking through down, just kind of like laughing. I'm just like, this is so funny. But I actually started thinking, I, I, I wonder I wonder if there's actually a connection between happiness and anticipation. Maybe, maybe there's a reason why they have the right to say this is the happiest place on earth, even though you will spend about 20 minutes of your day doing something thrilling. Because it's actually a day filled with hope. Your entire day is waiting for something. It is hoping. It is this anticipation in your heart, longing for you that that moment comes where you can finally get on Space Mountain, right? You're finally on on, on the Matterhorn, or you're in or you're um, in California Adventure. You're, you're, the moment comes, but it but they know something that. Actually, Scripture talks about that there's actually something beautiful and actually joyful in the waiting if you let it. But we've all seen the people at Disneyland who do not look so happy. Am I right? Who, who's happy at Disneyland? Three guys in the back just raised their hand. It was a hypothetical question. I'm not asking in this room. Put your hands down. <laughs> think about it. You, you'll notice the people who are smiling and the people who are just sitting there kind of like this, it, it's normally the, the kids. And, the, and there's the weird adults too. <laughs> just smiling all day. But I think there's something about, this is why Jesus said, like, you, you have to become like a child into the kingdom of heaven. There's something beautiful and significant in the anticipation, the hope that we have in this life. But so oftentimes, we just feel like it's one long line. And I think that my hope is in this series is that we would just find ourselves opening up our eyes. Not, and we're not oblivious. It's not like we're saying bad things don't happen. It's not like suffering doesn't happen. What we're saying is in the midst of it, in the midst of it, there is something that we can have. And it's hope. And hope in and of itself is good and foundational for our belief. I have a friend. Um, it's one more story before we get into the, the text tonight. I have a friend of mine who lives out of town, um, and he's been going through a really rough season uh, in his marriage. And uh, on the brink of divorce, things like that, and I'm talking to my friend, and, just, and he's just being, being honest with me. And I'm listening to his pain and his confusion and his, and his ache and things that he wished he would have done different and things that he doesn't understand. And he's just pouring out his heart to me. and I'm just sitting there and he just stops me dead in my tracks. It's something I'll never forget. And he kept saying sign over again and he says, I have hope in my heart. And finally I just stopped and I'm like, how do you do that? I'm like, things don't seem to be going well. How do you keep having hope in your heart? He says, I don't have hope in the outcome. I have hope in the one who holds the outcome. It's like, my hope is in Jesus, it's not in the reconciliation of my marriage. My hope is in the one who has the power to reconcile my marriage. And I was just like, that'll preach. And that really is one of the things, along with some conversations with my wife that kind of spurred on this series. I'm like, there, there is this subversive, provocative notion that in the midst of suffering, not in the absence of it, that we can have hope in our heart because we know Jesus, who says in First Peter, is actually a living hope. And as we place our hope in Him, not only do we recognize He has the power over our circumstances in our lives, but He is alive in us currently. And that can change our hearts, it changes our atmosphere, and all of a sudden we can become the child at Disneyland who thinks they had the best time in the world, or we can be that cynical adult who's just complaining about the heat and how much money they spent. And all the differences is, is hope. I want to live a life. just brimming over with hope in my heart. And again, this has nothing to do with us turning our eyes to suffering, but has in the face of suffering that we will be a people of hope. We'll be a church of hope. That's a culture of hope. Because we desperately need it. Because the alternative is a sick heart. And so, we're going to find ourselves in the next few weeks going through this book called Ephesians. If you have a Bible, you can turn there now. Um, Ephesians is amazing. If you've never read it, um, I know a lot of you guys are just new on your journey with Jesus. Some of you guys have never read a Bible before, and I'm so glad that you get to do this with us. And and just, we say this all the time we're all students here. None of us have this completely figured out, um, but we believe this book matters and it changes lives. And so, uh, we're going to be spending time in this book called Ephesians. And let me kind of give you some context of what this is. is. This is really not a book. It's actually a letter. And it was a letter written by a man named Paul. Paul was, uh, did a couple of different things in his life that could not be more different. Um, Paul was a very highly educated and powerful Jewish teacher and scribe. Uh, he was a Pharisee, someone who spent his life studying the scriptures, and he was devout and zealous for Judaism. So much so that when this new radical sect of Judaism called Christianity or the way it starts coming up, he, he believes it's polluting Judaism. So he devotes his life to killing and, organize, and organizing imprisonment and killing of these Christians. This is his whole passion of his life. Until one day... This man who was named Saul encounters Jesus himself. This is after Jesus has died and risen again. Jesus shows up, knocks him off his high horse literally, blinds him, and then a couple of days later heals him. And in that moment Paul goes from killing Christians to become one of the most prolific Christ followers and missionaries the world has ever seen. And throughout his life Paul begins to start going. And he starts sharing this message that is so um, beautiful and inviting and challenging. It's called the gospel. That people began to just start following this man named Jesus. Or they began to start hating them even more. And so this is where Paul kind of finds his life. And so on his journeys, as he's going to try and start these churches and tell people about Jesus, he ends up in this city called Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was this city—if you can almost imagine a Los Angeles or New York—it was the second biggest city in the ancient world, um, filled with people, very wealthy, full of philosophy and art, um, huge um, uh, things that were were built in stadiums and theaters and gymnasiums. I mean, this this was a sight to be seen. Ephesus was was just. Uh, could not be more bustling and, and, and beautiful. And so Paul shows up at this city of Ephesus and he begins to go to these Jewish synagogues, starts telling people about Jesus, and amazing things start happening. You can read about it in Acts chapter 17, 18, and 19, and 20. I would encourage you to do it. There's a lot of the book of Acts that just talks about what happens there. It's about 52 AD, about 20 years after Jesus had ascended. And, he, and there's some radical things that start happening. So much so that people would actually go and they would take handkerchiefs and towels, touch Paul, and they would go and heal people with them. I mean, this is crazy stuff. So, and, and so people are following him in droves, and at the same time, these people who were making um, idols for a living, right, they make carved images of things like Artemis and Diana and these kind of Greek, um, Rome, Greco-Roman gods and goddesses, began to be like, this guy is stealing our business, no one's buying idols anymore. They're worshiping Jesus. And so these guys insinuate a riot in Ephesus. Dude, Paul's the man. When's the last time you caused a riot, right? Like this guy's like so punk rock. So he shows up in Ephesus, is doing his thing, and the whole town becomes up where they love him, where they hate him. There's a riot going on, and eventually Paul just has to leave. It's getting so crazy. But he spends three years there. Matter of fact, this is, some people think this is kind of Paul's maybe favorite place to have been. He goes and visits them again, and he writes this letter 10 years after his time there. Paul's now sitting in a prison cell in Rome, um, probably more like under house arrest, still in chains, but he has the freedom to write, and he writes four letters. He writes the letters to the Philippians, the Colossians, uh, a, a letter called Philemon, and this letter. And he sends them out as he's sitting there in chains, awaiting to see Caesar. This is how big this guy's getting. And so he's about to, and he's awaiting his court date. Doesn't know how long it'll be. Doesn't know if he'll even make it there alive. And he writes this letter. And this letter has been praised by theologians for years. A lot of them called the crown jewel of the epistles, right? Ephesians is so beautiful, And Paul writes them and he lays out, which is why I'm so excited, he lays out this incredible, vivid picture, this 30,000 foot picture. This is what it means for us to follow Jesus in this world today. And this is one of the things he says in the very first chapter, starting in chapter 1, verse 18. He says, I pray, keep in mind, he's now writing this church he loves so much, 10 years later, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be opened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. This is huge. Paul's prayer for this church is that their eyes of their hearts would be open, which is assuming that their eyes have began to shut to what? To hope. And it's not just, just this ethereal idea, but it's a hope that Jesus called them to. It's, I'm praying that your eyes would be open to hope again. The riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparable great power for us who believe. And so Paul right there identifies there's two reasons to hope. Number one, you have an inheritance coming. And number two, you have a power that's available now. So if if you want this, the Cliff Notes version of the next like six, seven weeks, we have an inheritance that's coming and a power that's present now. That's enough reason to have hope in our hearts. And so, thank you, babe. Let's go on a date later tonight. Um, And so as he's writing these things to them, uh, we're going to go through these things, and and we're going to go through the whole book, the whole letter of this church in Ephesus. And they would have read it in a different setting than this. It's not like a lecture, but they would have been sitting around a a home in some sort of kind of mud-type building, and they're sitting around maybe even in private in fear for their lives. And this letter is being read out loud, and they're talking about what this looks like. And we're going to be starting with just the first two verses tonight. We're not going to dive super deep into the text. But we're going to stop and we're going to really focus on a couple words because Paul starts this letter along with 13 others. I'm sorry, 13 other times he used this phrase. And then he starts the letters the exact same thing. And I think there's something that we become so familiar with it, we just move on. And I think there's something that the repetition is trying to get our attention. So let's read the first couple verses. of this chapter. Paul, this is his introduction, right? Paul, an apostle of Christ, or a sent one by Christ, Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. And this is what we're going to focus in on tonight. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So almost every time Paul starts a letter, when Peter starts his letters... They begin with this phrase that we believe was of common greeting, but a powerful statement in the early church, and it's grace and peace. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, I'm writing to the holy people, the faithful ones in Ephesus, grace and peace to you. Grace and peace. Why would Paul use this to intro and end so many of his letters? What is so significant about these two words? And I, and I believe that if we can, we're going to unpack these two words tonight, if we can understand what he means when he says grace and peace to you, well, what will happen is this will begin to start building the, the bedrock and the foundation of why we have hope, why we can have hope today in the present reality we live in. So we're, we're going to do a couple things tonight. Number one, we're going to try and figure out what does he actually mean By grace? What does he mean by peace? And then what's the relationship between the two? Because that may be the most significant part in here. So you guys ready? So we're going to do a little bit of of digging here. But the Greek word that he uses here for grace is charis. Say charis. 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 It is this beautiful word. And in the shortest version, the shortest translation of what it means is gift. Gift. Gift and peace to you. It's an interesting and intriguing idea. Grace sounds so like Christianese that we forget that this is actually something deeper. And he, and he pronounces this charis to you. And so Matthew Henry defines grace like this. Grace is the free undeserved goodness and favor of God to mankind. I, I don't know about you, but grace has always intrigued me, but it's always felt mysterious. Anyone else? I mean, they talk about it all the time. I mean, a matter of fact, Galatians, the entire book is almost written about this concept of grace. And I've studied it, I went to Bible college, I did all these things, and there's still times I'm like, I don't get it. And I don't, and this is what I want you to do, I don't think it's because I can't intellectually understand grace. I think it's because it goes against everything that's inside of me. Because grace says this. Grace says, you don't do anything, God does everything. And that is a hard concept for us to agree. So we immediately, we start looking for loopholes. Because grace is uncomfortable. Gifts are uncomfortable. Especially when those gifts feel undeserved or over the top. You know what I'm talking about? You know the gifts that have been given to you that just feel like a little bit too much? You're a little bit undeserved? And, you, and you're left with this sense of like, well, what do I have to do in repayment? I don't feel like I deserve this. I'm like, this is costing you too much. And grace does the same thing to us, but I think at a much deeper level, to the point where we sing about it, we talk about it, we, we like the concept of it. But if we're, if we're real with ourselves, as a culture, and just as humanity in general, we have a very hard time receiving. We a hard time. We, might, we feel way more comfortable serving than being served. And Jesus knew this the night when he washed his disciples' feet, when he got on the floor and he starts scrubbing the, the, the dirt and the scum off his disciples' feet. And, what, and you know what that is? It's grace. I'm gonna do this for you. And what does Peter do? You can't do this. That's exactly our response when it comes to grace. This can't be. It's too good. There's no such thing as a free lunch, right? Much less a free salvation. There's something in this that seems very suspicious of grace. Which is why I believe Paul says it again and again and again and again. Charis, Charis, remember this gift. This is not about you. This is not about how you perform. This is about what God has performed for you. This is what God has done for you. It's, and in every letter, he would just remind, he draws our attention. This starts with a gift. For God so loved the world that he gave, not you gave. Do we have response to grace? Absolutely. I I would say, do we have? I I think it's more, how how can we not respond to this gift? But grace is, if we're just honest with ourselves, is uncomfortable. And I was was thinking about times in my life where I've I've just felt like just blown away by a gift. You guys ever had those moments? You just get a gift and you're just like, was not expecting that, way over the top. And it doesn't happen a lot, but there's sometimes there's moments in life like, wow, that was really, really meaningful. Um, and, I, and I was thinking, I was thinking about like the drums that I got when I was a kid was like super meaningful for me. Jen bought me this like super rad, like expensive watch when you're first like uh, getting married and we had no money. I was like, oh, that's a lot of money. Like is like I was just thinking about it, like, those are really like special gifts. I thought about when my when my mom and dad gave us a car, um, right before we got married. This is just those moments and like they just because you can't forget grace, you don't forget gifts like that. And maybe it's because it's my anniversary, but I just want to be honest. I think the time of my life where I felt the most overwhelmed by a gift is when Jen and I got married, and I remember. These moments when we were friends, when we were dating, that if you knew us back then, and I've said this a lot, but Jen was so out of my league, and still is, that it was, um, I I felt like a coward. I was so unsure of myself. She finally had to be the one to ask me on a date. I just like, like, she'll never go for me, right? Like, just totally, and I'm not just saying that I'm like, this is Truly how I felt. And so as we started dating and developing this relationship, there's these moments. And this doesn't mean it's where everything's perfect. It doesn't mean we don't have fights and conflict and tension. But it's actually sometimes in the conflict and in the tension, I realize, like, man, you're exactly what I need. Even if we don't like each other right now, I needed to hear that. What a gift. Because you're making me and you're pushing me into being more like Christ. And it's, for me, it's just one of those moments that I just still think like, Lord, I, I don't deserve her. Um, I wish I acted like that all the time. I wish I treated her with the dignity and the preciousness that I should. But there are these moments of clarity that I have that I, just, I don't deserve my wife. I don't deserve the, the, the kids that we get to love on and raise up. We didn't earn those. It's grace. And ultimately, all those are just shadows that point us to the greatest gift, which is Jesus. That he gave himself, which makes every other great gift we've ever received pale in comparison to the gospel. So just a couple of thoughts on grace. If you're you're taking notes, which I don't think any of you do, but let's pretend just for my sake that you do. Sometimes you guys write pictures and I like those, but a couple of thoughts on grace. The first one is this. Grace must be received. I know that may sound simple, but we have to understand that. Grace must be received. Augustine, not my son, he can't talk. Um, But the saint said this. You sought us when we sought you not. You sought us indeed that we might seek you. I love that. You sought us even though we didn't seek you. You sought us so that we would seek you. It's so funny, I used to tell my testimony, this is when I decided to follow Jesus and then I just kind of woke up one day, I'm like, man, this is when I actually woke up to him pursuing me all along. See, grace has to be received and if we can't receive, then we'll never enjoy grace. Second thing is that grace is powerful and it's enough. Grace is enough. The same author, Paul, writes another letter to a church in Corinth who's really messed up. And he starts talking about his own life. He starts talking about these afflictions that he has. It might be with his eyesight. It might be something. But he says this really interesting thing. In 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7, it says, Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. I mean, if anyone's going to get their prayers answered, it's the guy who has like handkerchiefs healing people, right? But this guy three times goes and pleads with the Lord, please take this from me. But he said to me, my grace, my charis is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. My friends, so many of us long and cry out for these things, and we should, Jesus tells us we should, but maybe there are moments in our lives, because I believe Jesus is always answering prayers, he's always moving, but I do believe that there are some times that Jesus just wants to tell us, my grace is enough, my gift, my son that I gave to you is enough for you. Is it enough for you? And if it's not, then we have to reimagine and understand and ask the Lord to open up our eyes to understand grace because according to scripture, grace is that good. That Jesus will look at someone in their brokenness and say, my grace is so good, it's enough for you. It's powerful and it will be made powerful in your weakness. And the third thing is grace always leads to gratitude. This is why grace is so huge for us. Because you can't encounter grace without it leading to gratitude because grace is gift. Grace is gift. I had mentioned one of my most memorable gifts I ever received was my drum set that when I was, I think it was probably a freshman in high school and we had like a $100 limit at Christmas which was like, a it's so much. I mean, how blessed am I that? I Like that was kind of our Christmas limit. So we knew like the big Christmas present, that was like our cap. But for like two or three years straight, I just I would just throw it out there. I'm like, I really want a drum set, and those are like, you know, two, three, probably three hundred bucks, four hundred bucks for like a cheap one. And so I just, out, I just throw it out there, and I knew I'd never get it right. And then the classic Christmas, open all of our presents, get the ugly sweaters, and I'm like, yay, you know, this is awesome. And then all of a sudden, no drum set. And at the very end, they're like, hey, go check check the garage. I was like, what? Run downstairs, go into the garage, and there is this beautiful black. I remember it's called sound percussion, like set up. And I, just, and I just freaked. I was like a drum set. And, and I remember my gratitude in that moment. But can I tell you, I, I think my parents, as much as they appreciated my reaction, were more interested in my practice. How sad would it be? Like, what a great gift! And just collected dust. This is what happens with grace. Oh, thank you for saving me, Jesus. Now I'm going to go do everything on my own strength. And if grace is grace, if it's a true gift and we grasp it, this isn't about a reaction. This is about practicing and leaning into the gift and continuing through our lives of giving grace that we begin to start showing our Father that we understand the gift. We understand that the gift is not just for us to be excited, but it is for ourselves to go and give grace. This is why this is such a big deal for Paul to say it again and again and again. He says that we are to be people of grace because we have been affected by grace. We've received grace, therefore we can express grace. I have a drum set. It's time for me to pick up my sticks and play. Jesus, I gave you grace. Go be grace to the world. Be agents of grace. When people don't deserve it, give it to them anyways. When you don't want to give it, give it anyways. Be grace and don't let it come from a place that you think you've done it, but because you've received grace. The second word that he, he says, which is just so powerful, is the word Peace. And let, let me just clarify what peace is. Especially, we, we live, we're pastoring in a community. We're living in a community right now that is infatuated with the idea of peace. But I believe that the peace we find in scripture is a little bit different than the peace that's become part of like our pop culture around here. Because the peace that we hear so much about and we sing so much about and is kind of pervasive in our culture is, means the absence of, of chaos, the absence of difficulty. But for the Judeo-Christian imagination, peace was not the absence of problems, but the presence of wholeness. It's a big difference. It doesn't mean the absence of things better, or bad, but it means that there's a wholeness present in it. And so I wanted to show a brief video for you guys. This is something from the Um, from the Bible Project, these amazing, brilliant thinkers up in Portland, have put some uh, videos together. I wanted to just show, because I think he does a great job, and I could try and do it, but they'll do it way better than me, of how to think about when he says grace and peace, this is what we should be thinking of when it comes to peace. Let's watch this together.
0: People can talk about peace treaties or times of peace. It means the absence of war. And in the Bible, the word peace can refer to the absence of but it also points to the presence of something better in its place. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And in the New Testament, the Greek word is eirene. The most basic meaning of shalom is complete or whole. The word can refer to a stone that has a perfect whole shape with no cracks. It can also refer to a completed stone wall that has no gaps and no missing bricks. Shalom refers to something that's complex with lots of pieces that's in a state of completeness wholeness. It's like Job, who says his tents are in a state of shalom because he counted his flock and no animals were missing. This is why shalom can refer to a person's well-being. Like when David visited his brothers on the battlefield, he asked about their shalom. The core idea is that life is complex, full of moving parts and relationships and situations, and when any of these is out of alignment or missing, your shalom breaks down. Life is no longer whole. It needs to be restored. In fact, that's the basic meaning of shalom when you use it as a verb. To bring shalom literally means to make complete or restore. So Solomon brings shalom to the unfinished temple when he completes it. Or if your animal accidentally damages your neighbor's field, you shalom them by giving them a complete repayment for their loss. You take what's missing and you restore it to wholeness. The same goes for human relationships. In the book of Proverbs, to reconcile and heal a broken relationship is to bring shalom. And when rival kingdoms make shalom in the Bible, it doesn't just mean they stop fighting, it also means they start working together for each other's benefit. This state of shalom is what Israel's kings were supposed to cultivate, and it rarely happened. So the prophet Isaiah, he looked forward to a future king, a prince of shalom, and his reign would bring shalom with no end. A time when God would make a covenant of shalom with his people and make right all wrongs and heal all that's been broken. This is why Jesus' birth in the New Testament was announced as the arrival of Erena. Remember, that's the Greek word for peace. Jesus came to offer his peace to others, like when he said to his followers, My peace I give to you all. The apostles claimed that Jesus made peace between messed up humans and God when he died and rose from the dead. The idea is that he restored to wholeness the broken relationship between humans and their creator. This is why the Apostle Paul can say, Jesus himself is our Erehen. He was the whole complete human that I made to be but have failed to be. And now he gives me his life as a gift. And this means that Jesus' followers are now called to create peace. Paul instructed local churches to keep their unity through the bond of peace, which requires humility and patience and bearing with others in love. Becoming people of peace means participating in the life of Jesus, who reconciled all things in heaven and on earth, restoring peace through his death and resurrection. So peace takes a lot of work, because it's not just the absence of conflict. True peace requires taking what's broken and restoring it to wholeness, whether it's in our lives, our relationships, or in our world. And that's the rich biblical concept of peace.
1: Super good, right? This kind of helps us reimagine what he's saying. So, can can you just picture this now? Grace and peace to you. So now this, this idea of peace, is something really that we have to we have to intentionally press into. And I, I, I want you to pick up something he said. Shalom takes work. Do you, that. This these things. It's not the absence of conflict. It it work, you are having to strain to get these things back in order and working and things like this, which kind of, and we'll get to this in a minute, but kind of feels almost like contrast to grace, receiving this gift. And shalom is not about receiving. It's about work, peace, bring about this vision, this kingdom vision of bringing things back into order. So there are four arenas in our life where we need Peace, okay? Number one is that we need peace with God. This is what the cross is all about, right? This is about what Jesus was all about, that there is a separation between us and God. We feel it and we need shalom. We need that wholeness together again, right? There's also we need peace with one another. Isn't it funny how everything in our life could be going good, but if relationships are strained, everything sucks. We need shalom with one another and that takes work. Right? We need peace within ourselves. Sometimes there are things within us that are broken, ge- generational things that we've been passed down to us, uh, things that have happened to us that we need to actually go and actively participate in the healing of those things through God's gift of His body and through wisdom, through the Holy Spirit. And there's even this fourth kind of arena where it's us and the world. The creation around us. And all four of these arenas we can experience when there is fractures in those things. And when Jesus came, it was to bring peace to all four of those areas. Peace and shalom with us and God. Peace and shalom between us and one another. This is why we take communion every week, right? Peace within ourselves and shalom within ourselves. And even outside uh, outside these walls with creation. This is why creation care matters to God. There's a wholeness and a restorative that he's trying to bring. So these are the two concepts, right? Grace and peace, we're there. So the last thing I wanna kind of leave you guys with is it's not enough for us to understand what grace is and what peace is. It matters the relationship between the two. So a couple of things for you guys to, to know. Paul never says peace and grace. He only says Grace and peace. Why is that? If they're just two even lateral words, why every time it's mentioned in Scripture, these things are mentioned in that order? And that should give us a clue that for followers of Jesus, it always, if we want peace, we want to bring about the shalom of God in our world and our hearts and our relationships. It has to begin with receiving. I mean, that just drives a stake right into the middle of our performance-based mentalities. Shalom cannot happen until we have received grace. And it's cyclical. As followers of Jesus, we just don't sit and receive, We don't just sit in worship sets for 24-7, no, 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 no we receive the grace and we bring about shalom. We participate with God in bringing peace, but we also have to be recipients of his grace first. There's an order to this, there's a rhythm to it. And if you are trying to find peace in your life, but you have not understood how to receive grace, I guarantee you, you are frustrated and tired right now. It's not a peace problem, it's a grace problem. Maybe instead of working hard and reading another book and listening to another podcast and going to the church service, you just need to stop and sit. And just be grace to you. And some of you guys just feel so warm and cozy in the presence of God, but he's just saying like, let's get busy. Bring about my peace in the world but we can't forget about the order. It begins, it always begins with grace. And the last thing I wanted to leave you guys with when it comes to this relationship, and then Will and Sally, you guys can come on up. I'll step over here. Is that I love that when, when Peter writes his letter, later on after this, he has the same greeting, grace and peace, but he, he adds this verb to it, you can find it in both of his letters. He says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And the verb there means an ever-increasing amount of. I love that. So here, here's the last thing. Grace and peace are not static. They're moving. Do you understand grace and peace? Yes, that's not the goal. You need more of it. Every morning I need to wake up and I need to receive grace again. I need to bring about peace and receive peace again. It is ever increasing. And we get into problems when we start thinking this is a concept to be understood rather than a gift to be received again and again and again. So what we're going to do right now is we're going to take communion And the reason we take communion, I love this, is because you can't take communion without thinking of gift. Jesus says, this is my body that was broken for you. This was my blood that was shed for you. This is charis, this is grace, this is a gift. We need this all the time. But that as we take these elements and we take the, the some called the, the Eucharist, right? These symbols, these thankfulness. That as we're doing this, what's happening is shalom. He was broken for our wholeness. His blood was built for our salvation. This is grace and peace. And so we're going to sing a song, a very familiar song. And as we sing it, would it move from a place of familiarity to a desperate cry of our heart? And after I'm done praying, I'm going to invite you at some point to come up, grab a piece of bread, dip it in the cup and go back to your seat? And would you receive grace? Would you know his peace? And would you ask for that to be multiplied in you tonight? So let me pray for you. And as I pray for you, I'm gonna end it with grace and peace because Paul believed when he said it, he was transferring it. And I don't get how that all works, but I know that they believe that it was not just a statement. It was a pronouncement over the church. Grace and peace to you.